spike in threats against those who serve the public. I don't know if I'll do the fighting myself or if other people will. I'd like to punch him in the face. Maybe he should have been roughed up. If you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of him, would you? In just the final months of 2023, the department investigated and charged individuals with making violent threats against FBI agents, federal judges, including a Supreme Court justice, presidential candidates, members of Congress, members of the military, and election workers. If you do, I'll defend you in court. Don't worry about it. The third group, I'll be a little more violent. Just this week, several bomb threats were made against courthouses across the country. Just knock the hell. I promise you, I will pay for the legal fees. I promise. You know what they used to do to guys like that when they were in a place like this? They'd be carried out on a stretcher, folks. These threats of violence are unacceptable. They threaten the fabric of our democracy. Over the holidays, numerous government officials made headlines when their personal residences were involved in a series of swatting attacks. Swatting is the act of anonymously calling in emergencies to authorities in order to send droves of cops to an unsuspecting target's home. It happened to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jack Smith, the special counsel investigating various Trump crimes and whom we on this channel affectionately call Daddy Jack Smith. Representative Brandon Williams, Senator Rick Scott, and former Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives Rusty Bowers, all within a two-day span on Christmas and the day after. Swatting attacks have had deadly consequences in the past, a fact that the perpetrators probably knew well when they made their calls targeting politicians that they were attempting to intimidate. But this is just the tip of the iceberg, the latest instances in a growing trend in U.S. politics that is undermining the fabric of our democracy and leading the country down a dangerous path we might not be able to escape. January 6th, 2021 was not the culmination of political violence in this country. It was just the beginning. This is why political violence is ruining democracy. Roll the intro. My partner on today's video, Delete Me, is especially pertinent given the rise in violence, especially perpetrated on the internet. As you'll see throughout this video, the increase in partisanship and political violence in the US means that keeping your personal information private is more important than ever. As a person who exists publicly, especially a woman who shares her opinions online, I am hyper aware of this. Data brokers are companies that find your information from all over the place, like in government public records and social media, and then aggregate that information and sell it to other companies. That's where those scammy looking websites that allow you to like search for people or do background checks on people, that's where they get that information. Legally, there are very few online privacy laws in the United States, so the data you might consider to be private may not be private at all. That information can then be used to steal your identity or dox you or someone posts your contact information online to encourage people to harass you. All this data hanging out on the internet can have actual consequences in the real world. I personally use Delete Me to help keep my information off the internet and private, which gives me the peace of mind I need to come on here week after week and share my opinions publicly online. Once you sign up for Delete Me, they send you a welcome email and you can get started right away. Tell them exactly what information you want deleted and their privacy experts take it from there. It's super easy and absolutely worthwhile for the peace of mind that it provides. You can sign up for Delete Me and get that peace of mind for yourself at the link in the description and use code LEJA for 20% off your plan. Thanks, Delete Me. 
The swatting incidents continued into the new year, with a call placed targeting a Georgia election official on January 3rd, a call targeting the federal judge overseeing Trump's January 6th case a few days later, and a call targeting Lincoln Project founder Rick Wilson on January 8th. Swatting isn't the only example of violence being directed towards government officials. In January, prosecutors charged a Florida man, classic, for leaving numerous voicemails at the office of Representative Eric Swalwell, threatening to kill him and his children. In January alone, bomb threats forced a evacuations, closures, and stepped-up security measures at state capitals in Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Kentucky, Maine, Maryland, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Montana, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. These events led Attorney General Merrick Garland to make public statements about the deeply disturbing trend of increased political violence in this country. These instances are just a few examples of how public threats and intimidation in the form of prank calls, bomb threats, threatening communications in the form of telephone calls and letters, and violent threats from anonymous posters online have become part of the job description of being a government official in America today. And no branch of government is immune, from senators, to secretaries of state, to election workers, to judges. The prominence of the role is no longer the sole indicator of who will be targeted. Liz Howard is the Deputy Director of the Elections and Government Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. In November, she testified before a Senate committee about the ongoing threats of violence, specifically being faced by election officials, those who organize, run, and ensure the safe administration of our elections, especially since the 2020 election and the proliferation of the big lie. Her testimony is essential reading to understand the state of election security in this country, and it's linked in the research notes for this video, available in our Patreon community. She notes that election officials with years, sometimes decades of experience, are reporting that the quantity and severity of threats and attacks against election officials have increased dramatically since 2020. Election officials have reported receiving numerous, repeated, threatening phone calls and online messages, being followed, being intimidated while on the job, having to leave their own homes out of fear for their safety and the safety of their family members, and even having their pets poisoned. In December 2022, a man in Bernalillo County, New Mexico, was charged with perpetrating a shooting spree, targeting the home of the election officials after he had urged them not to certify the election results. The Brennan Center conducted a nationwide survey of election officials earlier in 2023. The results found that nearly one-third of all election officials surveyed had personally been abused, harassed, or threatened because of their job. And nearly three-quarters of all survey respondents felt that threats had increased in recent years, and nearly half indicated they were concerned about the safety of their colleagues. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't think of a single day job that I'd be willing to put my literal life on the line for, okay? Even one as noble as ensuring the smooth functioning of democratic elections. And I think a lot of people feel the same. That same Brennan Center survey found that we are losing the equivalent of one to two election officials every single day in this country. At this rate, they estimate that 20% of election officials will be running their very first presidential election this year in 2024. 20%. I've never done this before. But that's just the average. Some of this turnover has been concentrated in the states where the worst of the election denial, and therefore violence, has occurred. Arizona has lost a top election official in 12 of its 15 counties. Nevada has experienced a 65% turnover rate. Utah's turnover rate is 59%. One third of election administrators in Texas have left their jobs since 2020. And this isn't isolated to large cities or spread evenly across counties. Buckingham County, Virginia, home to 17,000 people, 
had its entire election staff resign after electoral board meetings, which used to be so boring that no one even attended them, became packed and contentious. And these departures meant that there was no functioning election administration in Buckingham County, Virginia. No one could register to vote until they replaced the election workers. The same thing happened in Lincoln County, Montana, home to 15,000 people, and in Gillespie County, Texas, home to 27,000. And this is just the information we know about. The Brennan Center estimates that nearly half of all harassment and intimidation directed at election officials goes unreported. Despite hundreds and hundreds of reported threats against election workers, only about 15 people nationwide have been charged for the crimes. 15. And this is due in large part to the tricky nature of prosecuting both anonymous people on the internet and figuring out what counts as protected speech under the Constitution. Stick around to the end and we'll get a little bit more into the weeds on those issues. Election workers, of course, aren't the only ones on the receiving end of violent threats and harassment. As I've already said, numerous state elected officials, members of Congress, and even members of local school boards have received threats stemming from their work in government, including those Christmas swatting calls, threatening phone calls and online messages, and doxing, where an anonymous poster shares the address and phone number of targets online to promote further abuse against them. According to a recent Vox article, again linked in the research notes on our Patreon community, in 2016, prior to the election of Donald Trump, the Capitol Police recorded less than 900 threats against members of Congress. In 2017, after his election, that number quadrupled and continued to increase every year until they peaked at 9,700 in 2021. Journalists at the Washington Post reviewed the FEC filings of candidates for the House and Senate and found that the amount of money those candidates were spending on their personal security had increased by 500 percent between 2020 and 2022. After the 2020 election, numerous lawsuits were filed to challenge the results of the election or to challenge the voting processes carried out during those elections, to challenge voting rights abuses during the elections, and to challenge Trump's ability to run in future elections. This, in addition to the numerous judges who have touched the numerous civil and 91 criminal charges involving Trump over the last year or so, means that judges are also on the receiving end of threats and intimidation. The Colorado Supreme Court came under attack after deeming Trump ineligible to run for the presidency in that state because he literally participated in an insurrection, which is like not very presidential, frankly. After the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled in December 2020 to uphold Biden's victory over Trump in that state, they too were faced with a barrage of threats. Those threats have continued as the Wisconsin Supreme Court has flipped from majority conservative to majority liberal in a state that I personally live less than an hour away from, but avoid like the plague because those are some fucking backwoods folks. Okay, Stephen Avery making a murderer. That's the whole damn state. And they got a liberal Supreme Court. One of the justices, Jill Karofsky, is recently quoted as saying, I'm really worried that there is going to be a tragedy. I believe people when they say that they want to hurt us or kill us. I don't think they're idle threats. And anecdotally, those threats have been on the rise, though it's impossible to know how big of an increase has occurred in threats against local officials, school board members, and judges, because no one's been keeping records for very long, because there was no need. This level of threat is unprecedented. This type of behavior on a national level or local level did not happen before Donald Trump. While no one on any part of the political spectrum is completely safe from the increased political violence here, there is a common theme in much of the rhetoric and attacks in recent years. 
and that is Donald Trump. The vast majority of violent threats are coming from people on the far right. The Anti-Defamation League found that there have been over 170 deaths linked to right-wing extremism in the past five years. In that same time, three deaths have been linked to left-wing extremism. In fact, in the decade between 2013 and 2022, 95% of incidents in which extremists killed someone were committed by people motivated by right-wing ideologies. And throughout his campaign and presidency, Donald Trump did nothing to dissuade his supporters from violent words or actions, even at times appearing to egg them on. I don't know if I'll do the fighting myself or if other people will. I'd like to punch him in the face. Maybe he should have been roughed up. If you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of him, would you? If you do, I'll defend you in court. Don't worry about it. And surges of violence against individuals happen like clockwork whenever that individual is mentioned in Trump's speeches and social media posts. And his political allies have followed suit, reinforcing his violent rhetoric and further encouraging his base of supporters by legitimizing language that should be roundly condemned. And while of course Democratic officials are vulnerable to violence from the far right, see for example the elaborate kidnapping plot against Democratic Governor of Michigan Gretchen Whitmer, ironically much of the violence and threats are against other Republicans, especially those who speak out against Donald Trump. Gabriel Sterling was an election official in Georgia during the 2020 election. Despite being a Republican, he spoke out against Trump's attempts to cast doubt on the election results in Georgia. On top of being one of the numerous officials who were swatted over the holidays, he's been repeatedly threatened and harassed since the 2020 election. Former Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives Rusty Bowers, whose name alone should make it obvious that he is definitely Republican, I mean, just look at this guy, he testified before the House committee investigating the January 6th attack. He was also swatted during the holidays. Someone called the cops claiming there was a murdered woman and a pipe bomb in his home, leading the cops to surround his suburban house with his wife and grandson inside. And while this violence often accompanies election-related conspiracies, the current indictments and legal cases against Trump have only instigated his followers further, as evidenced by a recent article from the New Republic titled, The Right-Wing Conspiracy Fest is More Openly Bloodthirsty Than Before. In it, the reporter chronicles her experience attending the Reawaken America tour in Las Vegas, a year conference launched by conspiracy theorist and COVID horse drug hawker Clay Clark, in partnership with former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn and the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell. Eric Trump is a frequent guest speaker, Robert Kennedy Jr. has given speeches, Roseanne Barr has made an appearance, and Alex Jones is a common guest speaker as well. According to this article, the undisputed champion of the Las Vegas crowd is Donald Trump. You were less likely to hear a bad word about Trump than about Jesus. And the language at this year's event was more heated than ever, with speakers openly calling to hang Anthony Fauci, kill Hunter Biden, and restore the rightful president of America through Nuremberg Trials 2.0. Mike Flynn used the event to sell his latest book, The Citizen's Guide to Fifth Generation Warfare, to prepare Americans and freedom-loving people everywhere for our current global wartime reality. And these indictments against Trump further prove the conspiracies they already believe in and only furthers their drive to beat back the oncoming forces of evil that are coming to take over America from its rightful patriots. And of course, this is one marginal group in Las Vegas, but prominent, if disgraced, Republican and right-wing leaders were in attendance. And this is not an isolated sentiment. Please see all three parts of my Lawyer Reacts to Alt-Right TikTok series. These people are scared. Increasingly, they see violence as the sole answer, and they're looking for anything to confirm the conspiracy theories they already believe, a phenomenon called confirmation bias that can lead people down further and further rabbit holes until their entire sense of reality is based on fictions fabricated in QAnon chat rooms and reinforced by underground blogs, which are then given further legitimacy by news organizations like Breitbart and The Daily Wire, so that these people end up on TikTok 
TikTok screaming about being under attack while sitting in their quiet trailer park in rural Oklahoma or wherever. And all of this serves Trump, and he knows it. Earlier in January, Donald Trump publicly threatened that there would be bedlam if the criminal charges against him caused him to lose the 2024 election. And his rhetoric only plays into the fears of his already radicalized base, putting more and more pressure on this upcoming presidential election such that the stakes feel higher than ever. They feel like life or death. And all the while, the actual documented threat, both physically to our elected officials and societally to our democracy, is coming from the very people who are screaming about stolen elections and existential threats. The call is coming from inside the House, and it has the potential to take us all down with it. And while we've talked about the facts and figures of the growing threat against government officials at all levels and in every branch of government, let's talk about how this increased violence poses a very real threat to democracy itself. The most obvious and direct outcome, the outcome that these perpetrators of violence are likely actively seeking, is intimidation. While the actual violent outcomes, the physical attacks, January 6th, etc., are of course horrific, the following through of the violence isn't necessary in order to enact control over politicians and change political outcomes. Like I said before, there is no day job that I would lay my life on the line for, and a lot of people feel the same. This increasing fear of violence is enough to intimidate political leaders and influence their decision-making. These threats could also influence judges, who are at least in theory meant to be the neutral arbiters and interpreters of the law. How can you neutrally interpret what the law says when you know that a certain decision could put your child and spouse at risk? Not theoretically, but literally. I say this a lot, judges aren't supreme beings who float above the fray and provide perfectly unbiased legal analysis. They're humans. And fight or flight trumps cognitive function even for the most just, intelligent jurist. That has real consequences for democracy because it undermines public trust in the judicial system when even if you elect a well-liked and impartial judge, you know that judge can be swayed by fear of physical harm to themselves or their family. Controlling judges through threat and intimidation is inherently undemocratic. Congresspeople are even less immune to the control that threats can exert over their actions and decision-making. And while, again, certain Democratic members of Congress face individual threats against them, it's actually within the Republican Party where threats of violence have more sway. This is because Democrats have more power in numbers. They all mostly disagree with the right-wing stances, and that's not surprising. But those Republicans who step out of line with the extremist views often espoused by those prone to issuing threats of violence, aka mostly Trump supporters, are the ones more likely to receive pointed threats against them and their families, and therefore more likely to toe the line out of fear for their physical safety. And this isn't just a theory. A recent biography of Mitt Romney by McKay Coppins revealed that Romney had numerous discussions with fellow Republican politicians who explicitly stated that they were changing their votes out of fear. At one point in the biography, Coppins writes, one Republican congressman confided to Romney that he wanted to vote for Trump's second impeachment, but chose not to out of fear for his family's safety. The congressman reasoned that Trump would be impeached by House Democrats with or without him. Why put his wife and children at risk if it wouldn't change the outcome? The same conversation happened again during Trump's Senate impeachment trial, when one senator, a member of leadership, said he was leaning towards voting to convict, the others urged him to reconsider. You can't do that, Romney recalled someone saying. Think of your personal safety, said another. Think of your children. The senator eventually decided they were right. And this has been documented elsewhere as well. Former Ohio Congressman Anthony Gonzalez deemed the hostility he faced after opposing Trump to be too much of a risk for his family. Representatives Liz Cheney and Peter Meyer described hearing similar fears from other legislators as well. And all three of these legislators all resigned or were beaten in primaries largely because their own 
own party turned against them for speaking out about Trump. And these resignations are happening at a local level as well, creating a chilling effect even within the Republican Party. And not only do these threats affect the people actively serving in office, they also affect long-term who will run for office and be in office in the future, because it dissuades people from running, opening the doors for others, maybe those who have less to fear because they're aligned with the would-be threat, to take the reins of government. Additionally, women and people of color who are already more likely to face violent threats in the first place because they'll be even more likely to step away from work that exposes them to further threats. And at that point, it doesn't matter whether or not the threats coming in against public officials are credible, or whether they even exist at all. The threat of threats, the fact that so many threats exist, is enough to create real, tangible political consequences, to literally change the outcome of votes, because people, especially within the Republican Party, are willing to do what it takes to avoid being the next target. Again, the call is coming from inside the House. And it's pushing out those Republicans who might be more centrist, who may push against the more extremist factions of their party, and who may be willing to put the continuation of democracy above their political rivalries. With them gone, and the rest intimidated into silence, we're seeing a Republican Party generally in lockstep with Trump supporters, even after 91 criminal charges against him, even though many of them, secretly, don't agree with him at all. A reminder that most of Congress is white, male, and wealthy. If some of the wealthiest, most powerful people in our country can be intimidated into silence, despite having money to pay $5,000 a day for personal security, like Mitt Romney does, or buy literal body armor, like former Representative Peter Meyer did, how does this type of intimidation impact democracy on a local level? For example, according to the Brennan Center, the typical local election official is a 50 to 64-year-old woman who earns about $50,000 a year and took the job because she wanted to serve her community. She doesn't have money to hire a bodyguard. She probably lives in a one-story rambler in the suburbs and has her grandkids over for Sunday dinners. And now she's got some sovereign citizen named Bart calling her at 3 a.m. saying he's gonna lynch her children. Of course she's gonna quit. And that's why we're seeing, all across the country, unprecedented levels of turnover among election officials, the people who ensure the smooth and secure running of our elections. They are quitting at alarming rates because of the fear and intimidation they have faced nonstop since the 2020 election. And this, too, has very real, tangible consequences for our democracy. Typical jobs performed by election officials include voter registration and list maintenance, election law compliance, public relations and communications, voting machine storage and maintenance, and protecting the election system, which has been deemed critical infrastructure, from foreign influence and cyber attack. This despite the fact that many local election officials are criminally underfunded. Many officials undergo what's called a cyber hygiene scan, or physical security assessment, from CISA, the Federal Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, and are then tasked at implementing changes to further enhance the security of our elections. However, many election officials report not being able to implement those required changes due to budget constraints, especially now that many election centers are having to increase physical security and personnel in order to deal with the onslaught of protesters and violence being directed at them while they're trying to do their jobs. The great irony, of course, being that in protesting against election fraud and claiming widespread election insecurity, these protesters are causing the very insecurity they fear. What's more, as we see unprecedented numbers of election officials walk off the job, we're losing years, if not decades, of election administration expertise and experience in every county, in every state in this country, as these seasoned officials are replaced by less experienced workers who are more likely to make mistakes, which then, in turn, can create greater chaos in an environment where conspiracy theorists are looking for any error they can find to validate their beliefs, even if the error is unintentional and has 
zero impact on the outcome of an election. Again, 20% of election officials will be running their very first presidential election in November. For example, when a single Michigan county with fewer than 20,000 voters reported incorrect results for the 2020 election, that mistake was immediately amplified by election deniers into a broad conspiracy that Dominion voting systems had rigged the election. The mistake was quickly corrected and multiple subsequent audits and recounts confirmed the accuracy of the voting equipment. But that doesn't matter. Once disinformation gets out there and people believe in it, it becomes nearly impossible to convince them otherwise. On top of all this, the rapid turnover of election officials can open the door for those who believe in the big lie to take the reins of administering our elections. The Brennan Center found that 43% of local election officials fear that their new colleagues might believe in election fraud conspiracy. Since the 2020 election, there have been 17 reported incidents where supporters of the big lie gained or attempted to gain access to voting equipment to find evidence to back up their conspiracy theories. For example, again in Michigan, a local clerk refused to allow a vendor to perform routine maintenance on a voting machine because they believed that the maintenance would erase the data that could prove the machines were rigged. One Colorado elections clerk led a conspiracy theorist into the building to access the county's voting equipment, which then led election deniers to publicly share passwords for the voting system, requiring the Colorado Secretary of State to decommission the equipment because the state could no longer be confident in the integrity of the systems, not because they were rigged to steal elections, but because conspiracy theorists tampered with them and then publicly shared their passwords. These instances could become more common as more and more of our election officials quit in the face of increasing threats of political violence. And all of this combined, the conspiracy theories of stolen elections, Trump supporters continued unwavering support despite numerous criminal indictments, the memory of January 6th, the continued erosion of trust in democratic principles and the US government as a whole, all means that the 2024 presidential election feels monumental. It feels existential for both sides. And increasingly, because of Donald Trump and his rhetoric, violence is being seen as a legitimate way to further the right's political goals. Again, you can see it in right-wing TikToks and internet content. You can see it in the dramatic uptick of threats of political violence coming from the right. And you can see it in the uptick of actual violence from extremists, which almost exclusively is perpetrated by right-wing activists. Since 2015, there have been at least 41 criminal cases in which the defendant invoked Trump as inspiration for a violent act or threat of violence. There are no comparable cases involving Trump's predecessors, Obama and Bush, each of whom served twice as long in office as Trump did. And this extremist culture grows as civic culture and trust in democratic institutions continues to fracture and weaken. And as this acceptance of the use of violence for political ends grows, that in turn further legitimizes those who would commit violent acts because they increasingly see it as justified because they're doing it in their community's best interests. And studies have shown that people are substantially more more likely to engage in political violence when they feel they have permission from their political representatives to do so. And not only has their favorite political representative, Trump, made repeated positive remarks about violence, he's also facing literal criminal charges, which he dismisses as political theater, implicitly indicating that the laws of this country aren't legitimate and therefore breaking them is fair game. This level of acceptance of violence was seen in the 1850s, prior to the Civil War, and it happened on both sides of the aisle. Pro-slavery Democrats passed the Kansas-Nebraska 
Act of 1854, which violated the Missouri Compromise and opened the Western territories to slavery. Then they used coercion and violence to rig the elections in those territories, with border ruffians storming Kansas territory, stuffing ballot boxes, and assaulting and killing free state settlers. The violence made its way to Congress itself when anti-slavery Republican Charles Sumner delivered a speech called The Crime Against Kansas, and in response, a Democratic congressman from South Carolina beat him nearly to death on the Senate floor with a steel-tipped cane. Numerous physical altercations followed in the walls of Congress. Pro-slavery congressmen began showing up armed on the House floor, threatened their northern colleagues with physical assault, and talked openly of civil war. On the anti-slavery side, the New England Emigrant Aid Company distributed rifles to homesteaders relocating to Kansas to fight off the border ruffians, and the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society furnished material support for armed insurrections by enslaved people. This combined to normalize political violence on both sides of the aisle and every level of government and society, and culminated in the Civil War a few years later. It led to a government that was willing to turn away from democracy, embrace vigilantism and treason, and enforce their beliefs through use of force rather than an exchange of ideas. The normalization of political violence is a slippery slope with dangerous consequences. Okay, listen, I know this has been bleak. Hi, welcome to my channel, that's kind of what we do here. But while I won't shy away from hard truths, I'm also careful to avoid fear-mongering because that is also incredibly unhelpful. So let's talk solutions, let's talk action, let's talk how do we get out of this mess. Well, there's no one solution, but here's a few that would get us to a better place. First, fund election officials. Remember that Brennan Center study? It found that 73% of election officials think the federal government is doing nothing or not doing enough to support them. Local governments in Congress should do more to protect election workers and provide resources for them. This could include federal grants for physical safety precautions, de-escalation training, personal information protection, and security upgrades. Additional general funding would also go a long way to help election workers do their jobs effectively without funding constraints. Pass laws to criminalize threats. States and Congress should pass laws that criminalize threatening behavior, especially on the internet, especially directed at public officials and election officials. As I said before, there have been 15 prosecutions to come out of the hundreds and hundreds and years of threats that government officials have been facing. This is partially because prosecutorial discretion leaves determining whether or not to prosecute a perpetrator in the hands of prosecutors, some of whom will press charges based on a single instance of threats, others of whom won't do anything unless it's a repeated pattern of behavior or rises to actual violence. The internet complicates this further. It's almost impossible to know who is sending threatening messages if that person doesn't want to be known or found. And the cops are woefully ill-trained as to internet law and cybercrime. So what's the first thing you do if you receive a threatening phone call or social media message? Probably contact the police, who will tell you that no one's officially broken the law, so there's nothing they can do until the person actually harms you, which isn't helpful, and which a prosecutor may or may not agree with, because cops aren't lawyers and barely have a working understanding of the laws they are tasked with enforcing. But if a cop tells you that, you're likely to drop it, even if a prosecutor, if given the information, may determine that it's worth pressing charges. The additional issue with prosecuting threats or writing laws making certain threats illegal is that pesky First Amendment. It protects people's right to free speech. But it's not absolute. It does not protect all speech. Let me say that again for the people in the back. The First Amendment does not protect all speech. Speech that constitutes a true threat 
is not protected by the First Amendment and therefore can be outlawed. True threats are defined by the Supreme Court as those statements where the speaker means to communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence to a particular individual or group of individuals. The language must be reasonably perceived as threatening and the speaker must have intended it to be threatening. Prosecuting this language, however, can be tenuous and passing laws restricting speech inherently comes with the threat that there will be constitutional challenges to that law. That being said, the state has a profound interest in protecting the integrity of elections and the safety of elected officials from intimidation. So narrowly tailored laws to protect government officials from intimidation and coercion need to be passed at the state and federal level. We need to pass laws to protect voting integrity. The Freedom to Vote Act was introduced in the House and Senate last July and would significantly improve voting rights in this country. It would expand voter registration options like automatic and same-day registration, as well as voting access through vote by mail and early voting. It would limit the ability to remove voters from voter rolls. It would establish election day as a federal holiday, something that's standard in many other countries. It would reinstate the right to vote for formerly incarcerated people. It would create a criminal statute to prosecute conduct that would hinder another person from registering to vote or helping others register to vote. It would also expand campaign finance law by prohibiting spending by foreign nationals and requiring additional disclosures of campaign-related fundraising and spending. After being introduced in the House, it was eventually referred to the Subcommittee on Cybersecurity and infrastructure protection, where, given the Republican majority in the House, it will likely die. In the Senate, it was referred to the Committee on Rules and Administration, and nothing has happened since then. There have been a slew of other attempted reforms introduced in both the House and Senate this congressional season alone, including the Same-Day Registration Act, Shell Company Abuse Act, Disclose Act, Early Voting Act, Alice Paul Voter Protection Act, Honest Ads Act, Protecting Election Administration from Interference Act, Democracy Restoration Act, Preventing Election Subversion Act, etc., etc., all of them are currently languishing in committees that will likely do nothing about them. However, the biggest fix for the increase in incidents of political violence is actually the simplest. Lawmakers and political leaders at every level of government must speak out against violence at every chance they get. Professor Liliana Mason, who studies political communications and political violence, and whose book, Radical American Partisanship, I Am Devouring, was recently quoted saying, one thing that we found to be pretty effective at reducing regular people's approval of political violence is just to have their leaders tell them that it's not okay. It's pretty simple. And the problem is that Trump is not doing that. The tragedy is that we have very easy ways to reduce violent tendencies in the electorate, but those ways tend to be based on leadership playing a responsible role. And this requires Republicans specifically to send a very staunch anti-violence message. It might be a long shot, but if you are represented by a Republican, call them, email them, tweet at them, and urge them to condemn violence at every opportunity. It's the least they could do. Send them this video so they can get educated on the dangers to our democracy if they don't use their voice before it's too late. Okay, so what have we learned today? We've learned that political violence is on the rise in the United States. This violence is directed at election workers, judges, and elected officials. The threats lead to intimidation and coercion of elected officials and judges. The turnover rate of election workers threatens the security of our elections. The normalization of political violence threatens democracy. And the best and easiest solution is for elected officials, especially Republicans, to speak out against violence at every opportunity. Thank you to my Patreon community for sponsoring the research for this video. If you want more information and discussion, head over to my Patreon community, where I'll be posting a special behind the episode deep dive video with commentary. You can also chat with me directly in our exclusive Patreon chat room, get early access to next week's videos, and so much more. Your support helps to keep these videos free for everyone and further our mission towards legal and 
political education for all. Shout out to my newest patrons, as well as my VIP patrons, and a very special shout out to my multi-platinum patrons, Joshua Cole, Thomas Johnson, Sophia Sams, Anthony Giles, and Brett Piontek. Your generosity makes this channel what it is, so thank you. If you like this video, you'll also like my video about why you can't stop watching bad news. Thanks so much for watching, have a good day, Bye bye